You're listening to the DC Public Library podcast recorded from the Labs Recording Studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C. This is Ninth and G. Hello, I'm your host, Ryan Williams. November is Native American Heritage Month. And in this episode of Ninth and G, we're going behind the scenes at MLK Library to uncover archaeological artifacts of the indigenous people and what those artifacts tell, tell us about the land and the people where the Potomac and the Anacostia Rivers merged. Joining us in this conversation is Dr. Ruth Tricoli, state archaeologist for the district and president of the National Association of State Archaeologists, Chief Jesse James Swan of the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, and Armand Leon, DC Native History Project. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, so let's get started. So uh, in the room, um, in addition to uh, Dr. Jacoli um, and uh, Chief Swan and Armand Leon, we have a beautiful display uh, that has been set up um, that contains, in terms of a number of artifacts um, that have been uh, found over the years. Uh, Dr. Jacoli, tell us what uh, many of these items uh, have been able to contain and what they tell us about uh, uh, pre-DC history in terms of, of the lives of the Native people here. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm the curator of the archaeological artifacts, um, along with the assistant archaeologist, Christine Ames. And the artifact display case that we brought today contains Native American pottery, which is um, there are broken pieces of pots that were used over cooking fires. And they were found during archaeological investigations at several different sites. Uh, during a project to build a highway that eventually was never built. Uh, and um, the project stopped, but the sites had already been investigated. They'd been dug up uh, and um, within the proposed right of way for this new highway. And parts of the sites may still be there outside that right of way. So it's really important that we know where that was. But uh, we now have these artifacts in our um, care, and we've got to protect and preserve them. Now, the reason that they're here at the Martin Luther King Library is the library itself is a landmark building. And several years ago, they wanted to build several floors, uh, build an addition on the building that included several floors and revamp the whole interior space that gave us this beautiful recording room the conference center and the auditorium. We've been to the rooftop deck before. Mm -hmm. That all is a result of this uh, revamping of the library. Now, because the building was uh, a landmark um, and federal money is used, um, you can't cause an adverse effect. That's the language of compliance, right? You can't cause an adverse effect to a National Register listed landmark property unless you mitigate that, um, the loss of that historic fabric. And the major mitigation for them to move forward and build the addition on this building was to provide us space to curate the archeological collections of the district in the room that they already have set aside for curating archival material. And so it met all the standards, the benchmark standards we needed to protect these artifacts, it's climate controlled, and it has to be 
the Halon uh, fire suppression system. It has to be limited access. There can be no pests. Um, you know, you can't have silverfish eating your historic materials right. or the boxes or the paperwork. So um, that's why the artifacts are stored here because they had space and we needed space. We have hundreds of boxes of artifacts from different types of archeological sites. Many are in our office. Some of them are in the DC city archives. Um, the National Park Service was holding some for us for more than 30 years. Oh, we wow. just got those back this summer. We're very happy to say. Um, the Park Service was very happy to have them out of their archives. Um, so we curate these materials and that means keeping track of them um, and taking care of them. So for us, this was a huge win. And for the library, for fairly small investments of, of a row of shelving units that met our specifications, they got to build three uh, um, stories on this building and do all this work that gave us the library that we have now. What's the story that they tell? Well, um, you're not the only one to call us storytellers. We consider ourselves storytellers. And the importance of these artifacts specifically, and, and artifacts in general, is they tell us the stories of people in the past, uh, what they did, where they lived, how they made a living. Uh, and specifically with these uh, prehistoric artifacts, is, I'm gonna call them prehistoric artifacts, if that's all right with you, um, is that um, they help us tell the story of the lifeways of the people that lived along the rivers here in the district uh, from a period when we don't have written records. So um, they um, help us tell the story of peoples in the past that did not keep their own written documents of the kind that we would, like they would keep in the archives rooms downstairs. There weren't newspapers, we don't have written documents. And um, in a broader sense, archeology span gives us the ability to do that for other people as well. For example, um, uh, enslaved people, they did not keep documents, docu they did not enter the documentary record in the way that people would write a diary or a newspaper article or anything like that. It's a very similar thing. And um, in other contexts, it might be about children or women, even in different time periods. The documentary uh, documents and archival records are often um, written by the people in power. And so that is really one of the strengths of archaeology. It gives us the ability to tell stories about the people that weren't in power, which are far, there are far more people that weren't in power than there, than there were those in power. So it's really the story of the masses. Chief Swan, what's your initial reaction in terms of, um, of coming here and being able to uh, not only see these artifacts, but know that they're being preserved so well. I'm always amazed when I come to Martin Luther King Library. It's um, a great facility, and I'm definitely, I would say, secure that you have the facility to be able to keep, steward these artifacts. It's just a story that's wants to be told, you know, these artifacts keep surfacing and they tell a story of the past. They tell the story of my people, the Piscataway Kanoe tribe. They tell a story of the 
Nachitek, which is now considered the Anacostia people. And um, it's very important that everybody knows that Washington, D.C. at one particular time was a major trade hub for the Native Americans before we had all the infrastructure and the buildings that we have now. So, you know, it, it continue, it's our nation's capital. It's, it's definitely a milestone in these artifacts all throughout the city steady, you know, keep appearing. And I'm, I'm honored in the fact that I can see what my ancestors has done. And I'm, I'm thankful that y'all have a facility that can maintain these and be a steward of these artifacts. So it's, it's truly a blessing, yes. Earlier in, in, in showing us these items, and I'd love you to share it with this audience, in, in looking at just the combination of, of what it takes to create a pot and the story that that tells of um, the people that were here, but also notably the women and their role in that trial and error. Could you share that with the audience? Well, a favorite subject, looking at the Native American women. Um, so you can look at pottery a lot of different ways, many ways. Um, it's uh, assured, tells us, um, it can tell us the time period because the, the, the fabric of the pot itself is a, it can be sensitive to time. People change the recipe to, to make the clay that um, was fired into the pot, that, that changed through time. But also the decoration, the exterior decoration changed through time. Uh, there are many ways to do that. So you can look at the decoration, you can look at the fabric of the pot, how thick it is, the form, the, that which also changed through times. But um, the form can also tell you what the function was. Not all the pots were used on the fire. Some were for storage, some were special. Uh, you could uh, use a pot, um, for many different things, not just for food. Um, so um, there are some of the dimensions of pottery analysis. That, that's what we call that. And it's a subfield of itself in archeology, span people that specialize in that. And you can also um, put the pieces back together. And in one of the display, in the display case, there's one of the exhibits is five or six shirts that were found near each other from a broken pot and they were glued back together. And that gives you um, an idea of the shape and the size of the pot. So one small shirt may not give you enough information to tell how big that pot was. But when you start to put the pieces together, you can see the curvature on the inside and the outside. Maybe you have a rim shirt, maybe you have part of the foot. So these are all different things that you can get from looking at the shirts, and not just one, but many. Uh, and uh, in archaeology, we dig by levels, and the further you, the deeper you dig, the earlier in time you're reaching, right? Mm -hmm. So you may have a Pope's Creek shirt above an, an, an earlier type, lower down in the excavation, and that tells you that people came back over time. And we have some sites in, in the district where there are many of those levels, and it looks like uh, people came back repeatedly over thousands of years. And um, where the rivers merge, the Anacostia and the Potomac, it was a crossroads for thousands of years, from what we can tell archaeologically. Um, and people reuse these important spaces along the river because we had the fish and you had the birds flying over 
during migrations. And it really just was a, a verdant place to live. The uh, grasses along the Anacostia River, where the river was a little slower in the backwater, where um, wild rice grew. So all of, for all of these reasons, people came to the river. And um, it looks like um, people came at certain times of the year, and then they might go to their farms inland for the summer, and then they would come to the river when the fish were, um, the shad specifically, were um, spawning. You know, they, they swim back upriver uh, to where they were born, essentially, their natal river, uh, similar to salmon. And that was a really wonderful time. And we have sites where we have pottery of, of six or eight types, and they're not local to DC. They're from 40 or 50 miles away. And it looks like people came, they fished, they had a, a, a I'm gonna call it a party. They had a feast. You could eat endlessly during fishing season. And then they dug a big pit and they threw all the broken pottery, they threw the pottery in, broke it all up, covered it over and left. And it looks like that happened multiple times over thousands of years. So. And the richness of the river um, um, was so much so that when European settlers came in and, and how, how they really describe in terms of the richness of that, this area of the Potomac and the Anacostia where it met. Well, um, in comparison to the Chesapeake, I mean, that was really the area of their first uh, colonization. Um, but then as they move further up the river, they're trying to attract settlers for, because it was sort of a money-making proposition, if you will. Um, but they described this area as um, very rich, fertile rivers, fertile fields and land, lots of timber, um, stone uh, suitable for building. Um, and they said that when shad were running, they were so thick on the river that you could cross it on the backs of the fish. Mm. So um, advertising, if you will, <laughs> but uh, that does give you uh, an idea that it really was a very verdant place. And um, you know, Native Americans lived here for over 10,000 years, maybe 16,000. And um, it was a very good place, even during the deepest cold of the Ice Age. And, you know, thousands of years later, Europeans settled here because it was that exactly what they were looking for. Fresh water, timber, building stone, fertile fields, for the very same reasons the Native Americans were here. And Chief Swan, speaking in terms of today, those same rivers. Um, uh, I'd say there are a lot of residents who they know the names of the rivers, but don't know where those things come from. Okay. Um, talk to us about talk to us about the people and the peoples along those rivers. Sure. So, um, when the 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 Ark and the Dove came up the Potomac River, they stopped at Saint Clemens Island, and um, Saint Clemens Island is close to St. Mary's in um, St. Mary's County. And they asked if they could drop their women and children off and um, they'd go further up the river to get permission from the chief, Chief Wallace at the particular time of the Piscataways to encroach onto the, the lands, really. And um, he gave them permission to come. And 
so through the years, you know, fast forward and things, you know, um, we had the, the Potomac, we had the Nanjamoys, we have the Matawomans, we have the Port Tobacco, you know, steady coming up the river. We have um, Akakik, and Akakik was the empire for the Piscataways, and it's really, it's not too far away from here by water. Maybe um, by boat, you probably can get there in 20 minutes. Um, I was kind of amazed to hear the young lady speak about the wild rice and the Tuckahoe at the particular time in the shag. And, you know, um, because of, you know, coming in and, you know, taking all the trees and stripping the lands, you know, all it created all the runoff and the mud created into the river, started filling the rivers in. And even today, you know, you have DDOE, they play a major role in keeping this, you know, correct and trying to reestablish some of the, you know, the fish that was here for centuries ago, like sturgeon and so forth. And um, they do a great job. And I, I'm truly, truly amazed by everything they do and everything y'all do. It's the story, the rivers continue to keep telling this story. I mean, you can walk the banks of the Potomac and you're going to find things, you know, and that's going to, you know, tell their own story, basically, you know, um, there's years and years of things that just keeps getting washed up or getting revealed. So, you know, um, I, I have to give honor to the ones that preserve in all these artifacts that come out, you know, and uh, I'm thankful, yes. Yeah. Armand, you've made it your <clears throat> passion, if I can call it that, to ensure that our district residents are able to uh, see their neighborhoods, um, see specific locations where they may be as it relates to artifacts that have been found uh, over the past few decades. Um, how did you come across um, this and why and, and uh, why did you develop this passion? Well, to summarize real briefly, just that I was fortunate to be able to spend time telecommuting from Australia. In several winter, winters, every other year, I was going back to Australia. And it doesn't take long to, when you're in Australia, to be sensitized to the concern that they have for indigenous people. So I came back to Washington only in 2016 and said, well, there must be some indigenous history here. And I would, you know, be nice to say that it's hard to find. It's not that hard. It's not hard to find. It's just not publicly available. And that's been a focus of getting the word out all the wonderful artifacts that have been found on a number of sites across the city. None of them are marked, none of them are celebrated. And that's the focus that my group, the DC Native History Project, has been trying to get, uh, get done uh, because, well, um, people aren't gonna go hunting for them by themselves unless they have cultural institutions. And I have to really praise the DC Public Library because it's taking an initiative to get word out about Native history. Unfortunately, um, there aren't many other cultural institutions who are doing that. So, but we keep trying and we keep uh, prodding them. But um, that's how I got started. And I started putting the information together and it um, it's rather accessible. Um, ironically, I was interested in finding out where the Natives lived in DC. And I live a block away from Garfield Park 
And that turned out to be a very well-documented site uh, half a mile away from the Capitol building in the American Indian Museum. So that's where I first started by saying, well, look at this site here, and why is anybody talking about that? And even in the midst of the, the museum's construction, uh, there were some items that were, that were found. I can recall that in terms of items being found. In the uh, American Indian Museum? Right. Right, well, uh, to make it, a, because currently there is no, uh, there's an exhibit about the uh, natives of the Chesapeake, but the uh, history of the Anacostans who lived here is not told either online or at the museum. And to make it as uh, embarrassing as possible, I say that the museum doesn't tell the story of the natives who once walked the land under the museum. And um, I hope, and I, I suspect it's going to be true, that eventually um, that will change. But sadly, uh, that's not the situation that exists now. And that's the type of thing that I've been trying to call attention to, to get changed. The idea of the DC Native History Project the project is to get the cultural institutions of Washington to do something that do the things they should be doing. Right. Um, and uh, the, the, the DC Native Project will no longer have any, we're looking forward to the time when it has nothing else to do. And it's all been done. Uh, it, let's just say it doesn't look like it's going to happen soon. There's some signs of progress. And as I said earlier, uh, the uh, DC Public Library is an outstanding example of a cultural institution getting the word to the people about the native history of our city. So I'd like to know of uh, any kind of new opportunities uh, that folks will be able to be able to see in the next and subsequent months or even today of okay. uh, how to best learn about uh, the history of uh, the native peoples here in the district and, and in Maryland. Well, one of the, the best ways at this particular time is through a website that we have is um, the PiscatawayKanoiTribe.org, and it gives a brief history lesson, you know, through the webpage. Um, it's been a pleasure to me to meet Armand and some of the work that he's been working, you know, with and for, and the direction that he's moving. Because a lot of people don't take the initiative to try to, you know, make that difference, you know, and be able to recognize that there's a problem right here and, and we need to correct that. You know, um, I feel the exact same way as Armand just spoke about with the, you know, the Native American Museum, you know, um, the Piscataways, your own Piscataway land and Piscataways need to be, you know, definitely a display. And there was one at one particular time. I don't know what happened to it since then, you know, but um, we've been pushing in that direction to try to get this reestablished. Um, when I, heard the young lady talking about the pottery. Um, one of the things that we have is, you know, our, our seasonal festivals. And one of them is the, the Green Corn Festival. So the Green Corn Festival can maybe give a little light onto some of this broken pottery. So at the particular time of the Green Corn Festival, it was the time of a year of a new, you know, so they would take their old pots and they would break them and put them in one big pit, you know, and, um, now they're being exposed, you know, and um, that's that's a great thing. We're we're also we're in the process right now of creating an app, and um, and that app is going to be able to identify, you know, um, significant places throughout the metropolitan area. I would say D.C., Maryland, some places in Virginia, and so forth. People be able to go and learn more about the Native American culture and um, history. And um, just as a reminder for listeners um, that 
uh, resources like the scatawaytribe.org as well as uh, once as it was uh, dc.org um, uh, will be made available on uh, the DC Public Library website uh, as a resource. This is, of course, uh, Native American Heritage Month, and it's a wonderful opportunity to amplify uh, issues, uh, areas of advocacy, um, and areas that, uh, that just as much as the history that is being revealed or opportunities to be able to, um, to touch base on uh, for district residents around their connection to Native American history, um, what they also should be thinking about as it relates to those who are here today and uh, uh, the, the fight, the consistent fight DC is not without its right. its um, its uh, advocacy organizations and advocacy for for people who um, are looking to be recognized and looking to um, uh, for fairness for justice okay. in any ways um, talk to us about uh, uh, what is currently taking place amongst the Piscataway Kanoi tribe as it relates to uh, Maryland uh, and reckon in areas of recognition. Okay, so at this particular time, we have one project that's been going on for about seven years now. A petition was put together and renaming um, Route 210 Indian Head Highway. So um, Governor Hogan has actually passed the bill, but um, through the verbiage and the state roads, they did a designation sign opposed to the complete removal of the Indian head, you know, um, name that's on the sign right there. This really is a bad statement that, that takes this right there. And, you know, we like to change the name of that and, you know, get it, you know, Piscataway Highway would represent both tribes of the Piscataways in, in the state of Maryland. Um, let's see, also, uh, I mean, I'm just drawing a big blank right here. No, no worries. No worries. Um, we have, yes, we have the treaty that just had, re, you know, reinstated uh, treaty rights of 1666, um, a treaty of uh, peace and amnesty. And um, DDOE helped us um, restore a portion of that treaty and gave us, um, you know, our fishing rights back that was entered many years ago through our ancestors. And now we're have the ability, you know, to have that take place right now. We have, um, with council member Charles Allen, he, um, he put in place a, a bill so DC residents can be identified as Native Americans on their birth certificates. That was a major, you know, um, landmark for us. Um, Ruth, talk to us about the waterways and the district as we see it today. And from an archaeological standpoint, what it meant for the people of uh, the Anacostia and the Potomac uh, uh, before the set or before European settlers, and uh, and what we may versus what we may see today, how what it meant in terms of those waterways, and and to, and to that continuing conversation of what that change does over time um, in terms of erosion and deterioration of the, of the region? Well, European settlement had a, a really a profound impact on the quality of the waters right from the get-go, basically. Um, once they started cutting down all the trees to make 
farm fields in a European style farming, you mentioned it earlier, runoff. It just increased the runoff. It silted up the, um, the um, marshes uh, where the reeds grew and, and the um, wild rice. And it started suffocating the oysters and the crab beds. And it, very quickly, um, it started changing things. Um, you used to be able to sail an ocean-going ship up to Bladensburg. Bladensburg was actually not just a port. It was an international shipping port, if you can wow, imagine. And um, the uh, agricultural practices in clear-cutting the trees, just, uh, I mean, that ended quite a long time ago. Um, and they would have to dredge the rivers. And um, it got so bad that uh, shipping was difficult um, lower down the river, closer to the Potomac. Um, and so they came up with a plan to dredge the rivers and create what is now Haynes Point, the tidal basin, the land where the Lincoln Memorial is, and part of um, uh, Bowling Air Force Base, um, to build um, bulkheads out in the river and dredge the river, lower the water level and um, put all that um, spoil material behind the bulkheads and create lands. And they, it took them years, 20, 30 years to do that. But the Anacostia River is a lot narrower today than it was historically. And uh, Haynes Point is huge, acres, acres and acres. And that is all made land. That wouldn't have been there when Native Americans lived in it would have been a really broad river there, and it would have been marshland, wonderful place for the uh, migrating birds to stop. Um, and um, it was a locus, uh, a magnet for Native American settlement because of all that. And now um, I would say to Chief Swan, if you're going to fish, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it's got to be tough to be able to hear that. Yeah. To be able to know that that these are this is what uh, sustained uh, gener generations of people for thousands of years. Pollution, you know, yeah. pollution has destroyed things, and if we don't take control of it, it's going to be gone. Right. You know, we have to maintain, you know, recycling and so forth. I mean, it, we have these plastic bottles right here. If you don't put them in the trash, they're going to end up in the Andacasha. And they're going to end up in the Potomac River, the Chesapeake Bay. You know, it's, it's, we have to play our part and we have to do the right thing. If not, those resources are going to be gone. The town. Yeah. From an education standpoint, because we, we now have a, uh, every subsequent generation becomes more um, aware of, uh, of conservation mm -hmm. and the importance of recycling and the importance of our waterways and the importance of of, um, of maintaining and being responsible stewards of the earth. Right. Um, um, I want to hear how uh, how you all have heard within the district, especially as it relates to our children, and the opportunities for them to know your story, opportunities for them to know uh, Native history in the district. Um, uh, even especially from our little ones, um, what if what examples would you all give? Let me start, please. Well, I mean, 
we would love to change the curriculum that's being taught in you know DC school system. And DC schools, they play a major role with our children, you know, and and they're real good at what they do. But when it comes to Native American History Month, they don't. They're really not teaching that much, and the stuff that they are teaching doesn't pertain the natives of this area. So, um, as my part, my responsibility is my position in the tribe. It is, you know, imperative for us to go to the schools and be able to educate and do, you know, performances and you know, show them artifacts as as y'all have here, but more, you know, children friendly um, artifacts that had, you know, to get them intrigued and have them interested in the Native American and let them know these people were here before anybody else was. And that's that's very important. And it's been lost through the years and we'd love to get that back. Chris. Well, earlier this year, I did do a presentation to second graders and I was very pleased by how they were interested in topics. And basically the presentation for the second graders was how did the Native Americans live? We have drawings from the 1500s before the settlers came show uh, aspects of Native American life that apply locally as well as all up and down the coast with the Algonquins. And uh, I focused on, you know, very practical matters of how um, how they lived, how they fished, how they hunted. And, uh, well, the second graders uh, were a much more interested and responsive audience than I was worried about, you might say. And it turned out very well. Um, the other thing that uh, did happen earlier this year uh, was I made a presentation on the hidden native history of Washington to the DC school teachers, uh, which was recorded for them to play at the uh, 45 teachers did a 10. Uh, the, it was a, it was a uh, virtual presentation. Uh, but um, as the uh, director of uh, curriculum said, it wasn't part of what the teachers had available previously. And um, we're waiting to see how the teachers actually work with it, but it was a, getting a foot in the door, you might say. And, uh, but there are a lot of uh, schools that aren't uh, DC public schools that also need to be reached as well. Including some schools who have connections to, um, uh, in their location, um, to native history, correct? Oh yeah, yes. the, the school that I presented to is right near Garfield Park, which uh, as I say is a well-documented native history. So uh, that was sort of the focus, I guess, of why they, they asked, uh, me to do the presentation. But, um, well, um, these are steps in that direction. And, uh, but until the children are learning what was here, um, well, we're hoping the adults will pick up on it too. But it's good Absolutely. to get them started early, of course. Absolutely. Speak to, as, as you've outlined in terms of the work you've done on, on uh, once as it was, dc.org, uh, to specific neighborhoods that listeners may, may not know be surprised that there are that there were connections to artifacts that were found in that, that region. Well, Ruth mentioned the Barney Circle area, which is next to the Congressional Cemetery, and uh, I have to confess that I haven't included that information in my site until relatively recently. Um, the Palisades area of Washington uh, has so many collectors over the years. The, the neighbors just would go out and keep finding artifacts and. Uh, uh, collect them and present them. Um, Palisades area is a very rich area and there's a group called the Palisades History uh, Museum, which um, is collecting and curating the Palisades history to a limited extent. Um, the, um, 
the, you know, the, the fact that artifacts were found on the White House grounds is uh, a, not so much a neighborhood thing, except the fact that it's such a central place for Washington. Um, getting the National Park Service uh, to display those artifacts is an ongoing project. And I take some consolation in the fact that there's the White House Historical Association, and they're interested in getting the artifacts displayed as well, and they haven't had any luck getting it as well either. Um, the Washington Monument Grounds, uh, the edge of the Washington Monument Grounds was actually shoreline, and uh, a lot of artifacts were collected on the Washington Monument Grounds in the 1800s. Um, but in terms of uh, more uh, neighborhood issues, um, the uh, Foggy Bottom, bottom area, uh, there was a Whitehurst Freeway development, which involved a, a couple of areas, and um, that's on the edge of Foggy Bottom. And they found extensive evidence of Native uh, presence at, at that site. And yet, I've asked the uh, archivist for the George Washington University and uh, the, a couple of other groups, there are no other reports of archives, of uh, artifacts in the Foggy Bottom area, largely because it was developed before anybody wanted to pay any attention. It was an industrial section. Um, and that's a problem with well, many parts of, of Washington, um, that uh, the stories got erased as the, uh, the artifacts got erased and destroyed as the areas were being developed. And um, so we have, we still find uh, the, um, the native canoe that was found near the, uh, the um, Navy Yard. That was in the 1800s, but we have piecemeal records of finds around different parts of the city. There was a fishing village right next to what is now the soccer stadium at on uh, uh, Barney uh, Buzzard, Buzzard Point. And um, th these records are available, and, and uh, it's part of the history of those neighborhoods. It was actually because the people in the Southwest Community uh, Business Development District asked me, was there anything in Southwest that I went off looking in, and uh, I wound up being sent the information about the article from the uh, 1800s that identified a fishing village that was right there where the uh, uh, Audi field, I guess, now sits. Right. Right well, um, so the, uh, the records of the artifacts around the city are available, but as I said before, they're really just not being, uh, there's no public displays about them, and they're not being interpreted for the public at this point, but we're hoping. Thank you for taking, giving us that. You gave us a great virtual tour of a lot of recognizable neighborhoods. A lot of recognizable neighborhoods that are changing. That you, you mentioned Navy Yard, Buzzard Point. Um, I will add the wharf uh, um, to that in terms of the great amount of uh, development that is taking place. Ruth, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> in your role um, uh, as the state archaeologist, Speak to, um, uh, speak to your role as a root as it relates to when development is coming through, and how how to ensure um, proper curation when items are found or in areas where there could be a susceptibility that there may be things that are there. So my job um, as a state archaeologist, I work in the historic preservation office and I'm part of the Office of Planning. And um, my primary job is to review projects that use federal money or on district property where there's going to be redevelopment and uh, 
review those to determine if there is any archaeological potential. That means, do I think there's a chance for there to be artifacts or intact archaeological deposits on your grounds? And I do that in a, a wide variety of ways. I use geographic information system or GIS and lots of historic maps and previous knowledge. The articles that Armin mentioned from the 1800s, I've got those mapped in um, so I know where those things were found. Um, sadly, a lot of the old newspaper articles are sort of general. So it might say, a thousand feet from the end of this bridge. And, and that's, that's like a huge area. It's a wide spot. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge. But I try to take all those things together and I'll look at a project like Audi Field is a good example. And um, we know where the original streams were. There's a lot of landfill there. Um, and we know um, what the elevation is today. And I can, I can figure out what the elevation was earliest in that area it would be about 1872. And I know there was a, a lot of fill that was placed there. And, and then I know what the plans are for the stadium, and I know they have to have big footings that need to go down 30, 40 feet to support a big stadium. So I take all of that together and I determine whether archeology span is gonna be needed. And we did have archeology span done there. But then you also have all of this urban development. And so um, sadly for the Audi Field area, although the people that built the stadium they, they're very happy. Um, sadly, for the stadium area, that was an industrial area, and it was all also heavily used during World War One. You know, the, it's right near Fort McNair, yeah. and that sort of expanded out onto that. And there were um, industrial operations going on there, all kinds of things related to the army. And the military just has a, um, a track record for doing really um, uh, ac doing activities that were really detrimental to archaeology in the past. It wasn't their intention. It's just that that's what happened. They they're out there with backhoes. They're building buildings. They're grading soil away. Um, they're burying um, oil drums, and you know things like that. Um, and so at Audi Field, we did not have what we were hoping for, which was an intact Native American occupation. And it had been graded away and just really, um, really, it was, it was messed up. Mm -hmm. It was, and it, sadly, there just it did not require anything beyond what we call a phase one identification survey. Um, so my job is to figure those things out and then tell whether it's another government agency um, or a developer that you need to do archaeology on this property. And this is the methods that will give you the best results to find intact resources. And so I may be an archaeologist and I like to dig and the, 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 the hunt, the passion for finding things is definitely with me. But I am a desk jockey and a curator. And um, that's primarily what I do for my day job. For the thank you for that. And, and you know, can't help but also ask on the other side of the coin. Uh, 
are there? What is currently within the district boundaries? What is the richest still, or most, or is there is there still undiscovered areas of the district? I would say that yes, um, but I also have to say that um, we do have a problem with people looting sites. And one of the reasons why we can't always publicize locations um, is because people come out and they, they, they want the artifacts. People, they love stuff, right? And they want to take uh, pottery and stone points from public property and take it home for themselves to put on their mantle or whatever people do with those kinds of things. And that's, and that's we, a good segue to my, one of my questions, which is, what is the responsible thing to do? Who, are, who are they going to call? They're going to call <laughs> me. We don't have Ghostbusters, but we <laughs> right, have right. Dr. Ruth. Right. Okay. So if you do find artifacts um, um, or other things, if you find a headstone in your backyard that had been used as a slab in your patio or in your garage, um, Native American artifacts or, you know, bottles or other things and you think um, are historic or, or heritage value, give me a call, send me an email, take a photo. Uh, your camera phone is your best friend, right? Um, put a, a ruler in a photo so that we can see what we're talking about and send me a photo. And people do that all the time. And, and um, this is a complete aside here, but I get phone calls from people in other states. They, um, people think of the Smithsonian, they look up archeology span in Washington, DC, and they think that's who they're gonna find, but I'm the first person who comes up in a Google search. And so I get these calls from people all over the country about artifacts they found. And then I, I can look them up, uh, I can look up the state archeologist where they are, or I just may have some knowledge myself and just help them out and hook them up with the right people. But here in DC, we're nice and small. You can find me um, and I will help figure out what you have, what to do about it, um, where it should go, but don't do that on public property. That is a problem. That's, and if it's federal property, that's actually a federal crime. Wow. And if people take it for themselves, then we can't share it. We don't have that information to tell the stories with everyone else. It's very selfish. And Chief Swan, what do you what do you say to those listeners who, you know, uh, you have the neighbors like Palisades and like like Armand share that go out and are are looking for these items? But what do you say to those those similarly? Um, well. I'm, I'm honored that they're intrigued to go find these artifacts and more power to them if they can find them, but there's the proper procedure that they need to go through. And just like Ms. Ruth said, there's a, they're telling a story and you could take something as simple as a bead and you know, that, you know, had a memory to something. Somebody made that for somebody and, you know, um, you could have it on your mantle on a display, but you don't really know the significant value of that and what it meant to somebody or what it meant to that site. So just try to be responsible. If you find the things, do the, do the right thing. And like she said, it's very selfish to keep them for yourself because um, everybody wants to see these things and 
we have the, all these Smithsonian's throughout the city and everything that can be displayed the proper way and take care of the proper way and climate control buildings and so forth. Uh, what do you recommend for our listeners uh, that, that they check out um, this month for themselves? Well, I have a list, so uh, <laughs> it's going to be hard for me to just give one, but I will give you the links okay. after we're through here, and listeners will be able to look at these different things, because um, uh, I'm not the only one who's focused on the archaeology of the district. Other agencies are, too. You mentioned the district DDOE or DOEE, um, but there's also the National Park Service, and they offer a lot of materials online. You mentioned Piscataway Park. Uh, Rock Creek Park was a very important Native American site, um, and they have websites for that. Uh, our own agency has a web tour. Um, we'll, I'll give you the link for that, just about the kind of uh, things you learn about archaeology in the district. Um, we're hoping to make that into a, uh, a more um, up-to-date interface um, in the next year or two. Um, other um, nearby resources are the Jefferson Patterson Park in Maryland, which has a reconstructed village, um, and uh, it's just a, a really wonderful place to go. And I know the chief has some of his own that he'll tell you that are related to that. Sure, okay, well, um, you've given good attention to the uh, once it was DC history map. Uh, that map idea actually came from Melbourne, Australia as well, where uh, at the libraries they were giving out the once it was map of Melbourne. So I came back and put together the once it was map of Washington based on that. Um, the second item that uh, may be on uh, Ruth's list is the book from 2017 called Chocolate City, which is a cultural history of Washington. And the first chapter is a very nice summary of the Anacostans who lived here before the colonists got here. And, uh, um, well, the, um, those, are, those are two items that I would uh, bring up. And I would say um, Akakit Foundation in Southern Maryland um, Southern Maryland, the Yokonicos of Southern Maryland, um, Patuxent Park on Croom Road. All these have Native American villages and, you know, participating with Native Americans on a daily basis. Jefferson Patterson Park, of course, they, they have, um, you know, a lot of artifacts and uh, facility to, to keep them. Excellent. Yes. I did think of one other thing. <laughs> yeah. The site called Virtual Jamestown, which um, uh, enables the viewer to walk through what is actually the remains that they found where the uh, individual uh, wigwams were sitting. And uh, Virtual Jamestown is another uh, site that I would recommend. Excellent. Right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've just tuned into DC Public Library Podcasts. Listen and subscribe at dclibrary.org slash podcast or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.